0: And welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast examining the history of this little chunk of the world covered in heather, glens, and granite. I'm Jenny, your avid steamership captain. And I'm Annie, rapidly paddling away in a lifeboat. Probably wise. I failed my steamership test with sinking colours.
1: Oh no. <laughs> so, one of the most frequent questions we get asked by folks is how we choose a subject for an episode. And this episode is a really good example of us finding a wee tangent and setting sail with it. So it began when I was reading one of the Scottish mountaineering journals from the late 1800s, and the climbing group was standing at the top of Dundaguya,
0: taking in the views. Ah, yes, Dundaguya is a corbett on the Isle of Mull. And if I recall, the climbing group was a mix of men and women, and they were all speaking of their travel experiences in Scotland and abroad.
1: Yes, and one chap was looking out at the sea and said, Now look down there.
0: See that line of white-winged yachts between the mouth of the Sound and Oban? And even the steamers, I like them too. They tell what we can do in this country. And to be honest, when I read this, I
1: was far more interested in the steamers than the people climbing the hill. (laughs) The whole article was a wee bit pompous, and this quote reminded me of the Highland Cleavances and the steamer ships that carried people away from their homes and over the sea to what was, at the time, British colonies. I couldn't get this image out of my head. And I was much more interested in the lives of these people than the fancy lives who were climbing the mountain. So I want us to go back to the 1850s and see just what those steamer ships could do. I'm going to give a warning for this episode that some of this content may be difficult to listen to. Because we're going to be covering some quite dark history there will be discussion of Highland Cleavances, colonisation, plague, death and suicide. So listener discretion is advised.
0: However, these are really important stories to tell. They help us understand why there are so many Scots scattered across the globe. Hello to all our Diaspora listeners out there. We've been wrestling with how to even begin covering this subject because it's a big giant, beefy one. However, we've decided to begin by simply following a path that starts with a single steamership in the 1850s. We'll have a look at why people got on board, and which powers decided that this was the right solution for the folks of the Highlands and Islands. We'll join them on their rough journey across the sea, and discover what happens to them when they are so far away from their homes. I found this really moving to look into. It's a history that I've never really researched in depth before. And I think for Scots across the globe, this is such an important tale to tell. But first, a message from our sponsors.
1: A big thanks to our sponsors of this episode, Webox, who managed to pack the joy and excitement of this beautiful country into a wonderful,
0: we box we box is a monthly subscription gift box that is designed to share scotland with scots and scots at heart all over the world we box delights that are often exclusive or can't be bought outside of scotland it's a fantastic gift and great value for money
1: plus we box supports scottish businesses artisans the environment and charities too which are all things
0: that we adore visit weebox.co.uk and use code story10 that's story10 at the checkout for an exclusive discount yay weebox yay for weebox the national museum of scotland in the heart of edinburgh's old town is home to Scotland's treasures from prehistory to the present day. It's open daily with free admission, and it's Scotland's most popular attraction. There's so much to see, from Mary Queen of Scots jewellery to the much-loved
1: Lewis chess pieces, and even Dolly the Sheep. There are six floors of Scottish history to explore. Plus, there are cafes, shops, special exhibitions, and much more. Plan your visit now at www.nms.ac.uk slash
0: Scotland. Right, we're back in the mid-1800s in the Scottish Highlands. Tell me, Annie, what's it like? What's the crack? So, in the
1: mid-1800s, the people of the Highlands and Islands are having a really rough time. The previous centuries have already witnessed the decimation of the clan ways of life. The Highlanders and Islanders are mostly working in agricultural and fishing industries, yet they have very few rights to the land they work. The vast majority of the Highlands and Islands are owned by landlord Lairds, who reap the benefit of industries when they are good, And then blame the tenants when the economy is poor. Glad things have moved on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's common to read that one of the main issues at this time was the overpopulation of the Highlands. But it's important to remember that the Highlands weren't overpopulated. There was technically more than enough room for everyone to live there comfortably. The issue was that the system of land ownership in place disempowered Highlanders. The landowning lairds were in financial trouble and so were actively clearing their tenants and replacing them with more profitable deer or sheep. These lairds forced their tenants to the outskirts of the livable land, along coastlines and onto the worst farming ground possible. It is these areas that were overpopulated. The communities in these places grew very reliant on the potato crop. An acre of land could produce far more potatoes than grain, and so with the little land the people had, they grew potatoes, eking out as much sustenance as they could. The population grew to a level where it could only be supported by a successful potato harvest. However, in 1846 the potato blight that had been moving across Europe struck the highlands. The potatoes came up rotten and inedible, and suddenly there was nowhere near enough food available to feed all the people. However, a large-scale disaster like that in Ireland was avoided as relief funds were raised from public charity, government support and the landlords themselves.
1: So this is a complicated history and we just need a little note here. The way that the British government responded to the Great Famine or the Great Hunger in Ireland was heavily
0: prejudiced. Yeah, because at this time, Ireland was still part of the UK.
1: And the government took an appalling approach to dealing with the food crisis in Ireland, which really increased the death rate, hardship and trauma of the situation. Now, in Scotland, the government behaves differently. They do intervene with charity, but people impacted by the potato famine are still living in a really fragile place. Because no one wants to be in the vulnerable situation of living on charity to eat. And even with the government-funded relief, there still wasn't enough for anyone to be surviving comfortably. These Highlanders and Islanders were getting incredibly poor nutrition which was impacting their ability to fight disease. They just weren't getting what they needed to survive properly. Now, couple this with the cold, damp winters that we're getting in the mid-1800s. The population was really, really suffering.
0: The fundraise money provided oatmeal for the starving Highland population. However, as the potato blight dragged on, The funds weren't enough to provide the continued support necessary. By 1850, so four years since the blight first hit, the money had been used up. But the famine didn't end, and thousands of destitute Highlanders continued suffering.
1: Enter the Highland and Island Emigration Society.
0: Ah yes, the Highland and Islands Emigration Society was set up as a charity by Sir John McNeill and Sir Charles Trevelyan in 1852. McNeill had been heavily involved in the distribution of food relief to the worst-hit parts of the Highlands, and this experience convinced him that the provision of food was not the solution to the issues that the Highlanders faced. Emigration was. He partnered with Trevelyan, who was high up in the Treasury in London, And together, they started the Highlands and Islands Emigration Society.
1: So this society was set up as an independent charity, but both men had big ties to the government that everyone was aware of. And so the Highlands and Islands Emigration Society was very supportive of the government's stance on Highlanders. And that stance was? There are nuanced prejudices at work here. Ah, as
0: always. Woe be history in its nuance.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So at this time, we do not have universal suffrage and the MPs are all the landowning class. So the government was against the continued provision of food for fear of making Highlanders dependent on support. And they were reluctant to spend any more money feeding their own starving population. Many in power viewed the Highlanders as inferior, genuinely believing that the deep-rooted social issues in the Highlands and Islands were because people were inherently less intelligent and lazy. The assumptions of low intelligence were rooted in prejudice against the Gaelic language.
0: But remember, the Gaelic culture had been utterly decimated over the past few centuries, and the land had been carved up and exploited so that it would only benefit very few people at the top of society. The tenant Gales in the best of seasons had very little opportunity to set anything aside for the future, so in hard times they were forced to rely on charity. The land had been cut up in a way that meant people who had lived there for generations had no rights to it, and lairds didn't want them to remain there if they needed charity.
1: Just another wee note here, with access to cultivate their historic lands, Highlanders and Islanders might have stood more of a chance to be able to create a life for themselves where they didn't need charity. But these people were never going to be given that. They weren't given a fair shot at being able to provide for themselves, because they'd already been pushed to the cusp of the coast, with very poor quality land. No amount of hard work can help you grow more oats when you just don't have the land to grow the oats on. Lairds came up with what they believed to be an elegant solution. Casting away their tenants to other parts of the British Empire. Let them have a field in the colonies instead of in their home island. The Scotsman newspaper wrote,
0: Collective emigration is, therefore, the removal of a diseased and damaged part of our population. It is a relief to the rest of the population to be rid of that part.
1: Instead of trying to genuinely help the Highlanders in more meaningful ways than providing food, the people in power had decided that mass immigration, including forced immigration, was the solution to the Highland problem. And so the Highlands and Islands Emigration Society began working with the government and landowners in hopes of moving thirty to 40,000 people from the Highlands to Australia. Now, we've got a wee advert that they placed in the Edinburgh Evening Courant to try and entice landowners and tenants alike to emigrate to Australia.
0: The Highland and Island Emigration Society addresses the national crisis arising from overpopulations in the western highlands and islands of Scotland and underpopulation in Australia. This requires prompt, energetic national effort. A plan has been organised by the Highland and Island Emigration Society on the principle that each of the parties concerned should bear their share of the burden. The colony pays the greater part of the expense in the shape of two-thirds the cost. The emigrant, either from his own means or, with the assistance of a loan made to him by the society, pays for the eligible members of his family. Landed proprietors interested in removal of the emigrants will pay this one-third. As the emigrants will be assisted to go in entire families, and the emigration commissioners provide free passage for a minister, both the domestic and spiritual tie will be preserved. And it is hoped that several thousand families sent out under these favourable circumstances will prove valuable in the formation of the Australian people. So far, there is no holding back on the part of the great majority of landed proprietors interested, and the committee have therefore earnestly appealed for assistance to the other parties concerned, namely to shipowners, merchants, manufacturers, bankers, and generally to all classes interested in the material prosperity of the country, and also to benevolent persons of every class who desire the success of an undertaking which is pregnant with benefit, religious, moral, and physical, to the United Kingdom, to Australia, and to the world at large. So we
1: see here that the society was offering to pay two-thirds of the cost of the journey to Australia, while either the immigrant who wished to leave Or the landlord who wanted to be rid of their tenants would pay the last third.
0: And this advert really shows the mechanics of British colonialism, calling on the ship owners, the merchants, the bankers, all of the people who financially benefit from the colonies to encourage more British people to go to the Australian colony so there is more potential for profit.
1: It's also worth highlighting that this advert is appealing to all British businesses, including Scottish ones. So Scots were an integral part of the workings of the British Empire, and huge amounts of money and power were amassed by many in Scottish society, and then the trickle-down benefits of this income would be felt by the whole nation. In our case that we're looking at today, This is going to be at the expense of Indigenous Australian people. The Brits, Scots and Highlanders would be committing atrocities against Australian Indigenous people in the name of British
0: Empire. And in general, wherever the British Empire colonised, the Indigenous people were treated this way. Australia was not the usual destination for immigrants. America and Canada were far more common and their indigenous people suffered greatly because of it.
1: So at the time we're looking at in the 1850s, America was already independent, go you America, but both Canada and Australia
0: are still under the rule of the British Empire. The journey to Australia took much longer than the journey to Canada, and the colony was far less developed. But the Emigration Society decided it was Australia or nothing. They thought the Highlanders' experience with cattle rearing and droving meant that they had the skills necessary for survival on the literal other side of the planet. Between 1852 and 1858, 5,000 people left the Highlands on ships sponsored by the Highland and Island Emigration Society. Multi-generational families made up a large portion of this number, a break from previous emigration norms where young single folk were most likely to make the journey. And interestingly, the majority of these people were cotters and squatters rather than crofters. It was those without access to any land at all that were forced from the highlands and islands. 59% of the people moved by the immigration society hailed from sky.
1: So some families chose to leave of their own free will, and other people were offered the choice between removal from their home or removal from their home with a one-way ticket to Australia. And so, while many agreed to go to Australia and were not forcibly removed, they were coerced by threats of homelessness and destitution. So the society sponsored a total of 29 ships to Australia. And as they were a charity, the journeys undertaken were all very well documented, which again was not the norm for most emigrations. But because of this documentation, we can get a really good understanding of what one of these journeys was like.
0: I'm going to guess terrible.
1: That's a pretty good guess. But I'll just add in that it's free to search the ship's registers. So if anyone out there suspects that their relatives immigrated away from the highlands or islands in the 1850s, then you can look up these records. The ship's register gives information about the family units and single people who were traveling, their ages, and they often have wee bits of information that let you see more of a picture of their lives. There's a column that I love. It's labelled Remarks, and it just has some really gold statements in it.
0: Refuses to get on ship without what she calls her podcasting equipment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how do you have a podcast in the 1850s, Jenny. On you go, tell me how.
0: You just yell really loudly. She just had a bullhorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So, an example of a real piece of writing in this column would be Donald and Christy McKenzie from Breakish in Skye with their four children. And we can see that they were dispossessed of their croft in May that year and Donald had been working in the fishing industry for a few months to make a living. They've added the words poor family at the end of this description implying that this is a family who simply don't have enough to get by. So in just a few sentences We can get a whole picture of the reasons why this family are leaving. Their craft has been taken away from them, and they are struggling. And then some of these descriptions in the remarks are slightly jarring. For example, Effie McKinnon, aged 47, had written next to her, Healthy woman looks younger than really is. (laughs) Understand does farm work. (laughs) There you go, Jenny. The
0: farmer's secret to youth. Do work. What is what is the secret to everlasting youth? Hard manual labour. <laughs> 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 yeah, for me, they would definitely have in the little remarks column, like, Jenny, face for podcasting. Not symmetrical. Squinting. What would mine be? Annie, very poor woman, but grows juicy tomatoes. <laughs> My tomato crop has been excellent this year, folks. That's why you look so young. All right. It's midwinter in 1852 on Skye. Hundreds of the locals have packed their few worldly possessions. Their families, friends, cattle, cabbage patches, and the island they've called home for their entire lives goodbye, and are awaiting a steamership. This steamership is just arriving after having visited
1: some of the other Hebridean islands. It's going to take these sky folks and the other islanders that it's ready picked up down to Campbelltown.
0: Oh, wait, so this steamer isn't taking them all the way around the globe?
1: No. Steamer ships were top of the range and unfortunately for the Highland folk leaving, emigrant ships were nowhere near the Ferraris of the
0: ocean. Ah, that is disappointing. I was hoping for some time to practice for my next steamer ship sailing test. So what's awaiting these poor folk in Campbelltown then? The HMS Hercules. Ooh, sounds strong, sounds ready for battle.
1: Well, that makes sense because it was a navy ship that was built in 1815. Now, by 1852, Hercules is no longer battle-worthy and she is on her way to Hong Kong to become a hospital ship. Is there a better way to make a little extra cash than to carry 756 passengers, the vast majority of these people? being from the Highland and Island Emigration Society going to Australia.
0: Right. So this ship that was in no way built or designed for carrying hundreds of people halfway around the world. And yet here we are. Brill. So I'm just going to highlight that what happens
1: on the Hercules is one of the worst emigration ship histories. So we do know that we're looking at what is one of the bleakest journeys coming ahead. Now, to be eligible to be taking people through the Highland and Island Emigration Society, Hercules had to conform to certain standards. So, it's kitted up not too bad. But, once it sets sail, things go rapidly downhill.
0: Oh no, hills and boats famously don't go well together.
1: The HMS Hercules leaves Campbelltown on December 26th where a brutal winter storm batters the ship for five days straight. The weather was so bad that Hercules turned back and sailed to Rothsay, arriving with its sails in tatters and many repairs were required.
0: And there were also some very seasick Highlanders.
1: There's a really kind of uh, sad little bit of information that I found, which described that the people on board kept whispering to each other earnestly in Gaelic, we're still at Ailsa Craig. They desperately wanted to be moving forward with their journey, but instead they were being held in limbo. Ailsa Craig is a jutting island in the outdoor Firth of Clyde, a very distinctive curve breaking the seascape. And it served as a compass for the ship, showing everyone on board that they were just being released into storm-turned chaos, being held in place. I always imagine immigrants saying farewell to their homeland in a romantic way, maybe just because that's what I'd want for myself if I was to ever leave. You know, watching the last peak of land disappear behind the horizon of the ocean. Yet this experience on the Hercules is the opposite. They get stuck in stormy Scottish seas and left with quite a literal sick feeling.
0: It's not a great start.
1: Not at all. The Glasgow Herald wrote on the 28th of February, 1853.
0: While in Rothsey, symptoms of smallpox appeared, which have since spread rapidly amongst passengers. After a stay of two weeks at Rothsey... The Hercules sailed for a second time, but after being several days at seas, was compelled by another storm to take refuge in Queenstown Bay, Cork. There, the unfortunate vessel still lies, and may lie for many weeks to come before she obtains a clean bill of health. The cases of smallpox on board have been numerous, and latterly, some cases of fever have appeared. The prevalence of smallpox cases on board this unfortunate ship is clear proof of the carelessness of the people in regard to the vaccination. For a considerable number of years, the inhabitants of the Western Isles have become quite indifferent to vaccination and the consequence is that cases of smallpox are becoming unusually common. The fact is that matters will not be properly attended to in this respect until every family be compelled by the government of this country to have their numbers duly and properly vaccinated. Since they joined the ship at Campbelltown, they've had on board four births, one marriage, 14 deaths, 130 cases of smallpox and three cases of fever. So for me,
1: it seems really obvious that they should have required the immigrating population to be vaccinated before loading them onto the confined space of the ship. That just seems like a pretty basic health and safety measure to take. Because it leaves me a little bit bitter to blame the islanders for not being vaccinated. Because the real issue were the restrictions of rural healthcare of the 1850s, and the lack of health education that these people had access to. Anyway, we know that disease was rife in the ship, and the weather was absolutely appalling. So I simply can't imagine how painful it would have been to be storm-tossed and smallpoxed. There's some extracts from a journal on board to peek inside what was happening. These include a mention of self-harm and suicide. They use historic language to describe this, but I'm going to stick to the archive as it was said because I feel it gives us a very true perspective of what's happening. If you want to skip ahead at this bit, please do. February 6th. Had divine services on deck, both morning and afternoon. Mary Macduff from Eust died of smallpox and left a husband three children and an infant on the breast February 9th a man from Uist named link not of Highland extraction attempted suicide by cutting his own throat he made a deep gash in his neck but his knife was too blunt to do the deed before he was discovered ten patients sent ashore February 12th, two births on board. February 13th, a young woman aged 18 from Strath named Margaret McInnes put an end to her existence by throwing herself overboard. She left her bed undiscovered and was overboard before she could be stopped. The current was so strong that searching would be in vain four patients sent to shore. February 14th. A child died and five cases were removed to hospital. At 8pm. The young man named link made a second attempt to destroy himself by strangling. But he was prevented. I'm going to stop there, but just this small glance at this journal paints a picture of how horrendous it was on board the Hercules. It's just despairing. So, as the article says, the ship lands in Queenstown Bay due to bad weather and the rapidly spreading sickness on board. I'll add in that Queenstown is not the name of this town, in the south of Ireland anymore, it's called Cove. The name was changed to Cove during the Irish Wars of Independence to be less British empire so good on you Cove. Alas, for the period we're speaking about, all the sources call Cove Queenstown, so that's what we'll call it. And our good people of Queenstown are very concerned about the arrival of Hercules being filled with infectious disease. A reporter from the Cork Examiner attended a packed town meeting on the 4th of March 1853 to see what the mood amongst the folk was. The reporter writes that a local stands and says,
0: We the inhabitants of Queenstown. Having heard with great alarm that it is the intention of the authorities to land either a portion or the entire of the emigrant ship Hercules and place them in the old barrack of this town, beg most respectfully to protest against this. Small packs and fever of the most malignant kind present prevail on board that ship to an alarming degree. Fresh cases are daily occurring. And we humbly submit that the bringing of over 700 persons into this crowded town will inevitably spread disease. A conclusion which we may say we are warranted in, as we have painful experience of past cases, one of which, the Ella, had the most fearful consequences, and the loss of many lives occurred in the two years since. If our town got a bad character, if it were generally known around, that infectious disease prevailed here why we all know what the result would be people would be prevented from visiting our town and perhaps a large number of persons here would thus be reduced to destitution
1: so the hercules was not a unique case this was an issue that many irish harbour towns and cities dealt with during the decades of high emigration The Ella was a ship that docked in 1851, carrying 250 German immigrants. Fever, smallpox and scarlet fever were rife among the poor folks on board. The ship was not quarantined. And not only did a large proportion of the emigrants perish, but many of the inhabitants of Queenstown fell victims to the diseases too. The folk at the town meeting carry on to say,
0: We would be happy to give every assistance in our power to provide for the immigrants. But the most imperative duty to perform is towards the inhabitants of this town. And that duty we are bound to perform.
1: So, as we can see, the people of Queenstown really did want to help the folk on the Hercules but not by bringing them on shore for treatment, rather by providing floating hospitals, food, water and other provisions. In the three months that the Hercules was quarantined, 237 Highlanders came down with smallpox and or typhus. In total, 56 people died.
0: 17 children were orphaned and were sent home to Scotland after their parents died. But while in quarantine for three months, after some time the rules were relaxed for those who had recovered from illness or were showing no signs of it. Many left the Hercules altogether and either returned to Scotland or boarded other ships bound for Australia, America or Canada. This split up many of the multi-generational family units that were on board. Of the original 756 passengers, about 380 remained for the journey to Australia, finally leaving Queenstown on the 14th of April, 1853. For the next 104 days, that's 14 weeks, or three and a half months, or enough time for the average person to go 3.85 centimetres of hair, the people of the Hercules sailed south, past all of Europe, the entirety of Africa, round the Horn of Africa, they skirted the fringes of Antarctica, sailed along the southern coast of Australia, and eventually reached Adelaide. And thankfully, in contrast to the awful start of the journey, the actual trip to Australia was fairly smooth sailing.
1: It's an incredibly long journey, and one that came with many challenges. From the violent storms in the north, to the dead stillness of the doldrums, the heat of the equator, and the freezing bitter cold of Antarctica. And while the journey itself was far less perilous than the months docked in Ireland, there were more deaths on board the ship. This was not uncommon. The journey was long and hard, especially for the immigrants in the lower decks of the ship, where living conditions were worst. The spaces were overcrowded and dark. Lamps and candles were not allowed, because fire could spread disastrously fast. Rats, mice and lice were common it would have been near impossible to live a healthy or hygienic life in these conditions.
0: I think I remember reading somewhere that they would use vinegar to wash the boats while they, while they were on their journeys.
1: Yes, so they would mix vinegar with chloride of lime to wash the decks oh. and that way they saved themselves from using any drinking water and it also helped to stop the spread of disease and probably improved the overall smell of the
0: ship. Oh, you know it's bad when vinegar is the good smell. (laughs) They'd all be pickled by the time they got to Australia.
1: That's also possible because they would be eating lots of pickled foods, such as pickled pork or beef in brine. Oh,
0: I'm not gonna lie, the thought of pickled pork gives me such heebies. I I honestly think I'd last about seven minutes on one of these ships.
1: (laughs) They probably also had nice Dried beef that you could have. (laughs) Either incredibly dry or very pickled. Those are your choices. (laughs) However, I do enjoy, Jenny, that it's the pickled pork and not the smallpox that has put you off this journey to Australia in
0: the 1850s. (laughs) It's the pickled pork and the threat of sharks, I think, for me.
1: Well, fortunately for you, Jenny... I have a wee snack of information about sharks, but to warn you, it's pretty grim. Oh, no. And, and sort of puts this horrible journey back into perspective.
0: Oh, go on, then. I need something to take my mind off the pickled
1: pork. The worst thing about this is it makes me think more about pickled pork. <laughs> so there was a woman on board the Hercules called Anne MacLeod. Now, Alexander Nicholson had also been a passenger and he wrote many letters home and one of them was telling the news of Anne. A lot of his letters got published in newspapers and so that's how we know this really strange tale. Unfortunately, Anne died on board while the ship was off the west coast of Africa. Now, when people died on board emigration ships, which, like I said, was a common occurrence. The bodies could not be kept on board because there was no way to stop the decay and decomposition of the body, despite all the vinegar that they had. So, to deal with the bodies, they would use Baville at sea. Alexander wrote that on the day of Anne MacLeod's funeral service, while her body was on deck in a light coffin box... Respects were being paid, and no less than eight sharks were following the ship closely. The sharks were watching every movement until Anne's body was laid to rest overboard. The people on deck then watched in shock as the sharks immediately disappeared, chasing Anne's body into the depths of the sea. I had a look for Anne MacLeod in the ship's register, and there were three people of that name travelling on the Hercules. I did a little bit of archive detective work to narrow down which Anne MacLeod it was, and it turned out to be Anne MacLeod from Kyla Sky. She was aged only 36 at the time of her death. She was a woman who worked exceptionally hard to take care of herself and her 13-year-old niece, Catherine, who was with her on the Hercules, Anne supported them both with farm labour in the summer and knitting in the winter. She had friends in Victoria, Australia, likely folks from Skye who had previously immigrated, we have to hope that her niece Catherine managed to connect with these people after
0: Anne's death. Well, you weren't lying. That was that was pretty grim, Annie.
1: Eight sharks, grimmer than pickled pork, Jenny.
0: Significantly, Annie, I would say yes. Poor Anne, and poor Catherine, and everyone on board this this really disastrous journey. But. Further major tragedy was avoided on board the Hercules, right?
1: Well, yes and no. Oh, I can't take any more, Annie. The Hercules arrived in Adelaide on the 26th of July, 215 days after people left their homes in the Highlands and Islands.
0: Ah, just enough time for the passengers to grow almost 8cm of hair. That's a lot of hair, Jenny and a lot of pickled pork.
1: (laughs) A big thanks to our sponsors of this episode, Box, who managed to pack the joy and excitement
0: of this beautiful country into a wonderful wee box. Weebox is a monthly subscription gift box that is designed to share Scotland with Scots and Scots at heart all over the world. Webox select delights that are often exclusive or can't be bought outside of Scotland. It's a fantastic gift and great value for money.
1: Plus, Webox supports Scottish businesses, artisans, the environment
0: and charities too, which are all things that we adore. Visit webox.co.uk and use code STORY10, that's STORY10, at the checkout for an exclusive discount. Yay, wee box. Yay for wee box. The National Museum of Scotland, in the heart of Edinburgh's old town, is home to Scotland's treasures from prehistory to the present day. It's open daily with free admission, and it's Scotland's most popular attraction. There's so much to
1: see, from Mary Queen of Scots jewellery to the much-loved Lewis chess pieces, and even Dolly the Sheep. There are six floors of Scottish history to explore. Plus, there are cafes, shops, special exhibitions and much more. Plan your visit now at www.nms.ac.uk.
0: Most of our Hardy Highlanders wouldn't have travelled further than their home islands, And now they've sailed halfway around the world and finally landed in Australia. From the little that I remember from school history, I do recall that Britain shipped a lot of criminals there at the start of the colony. Was this a lawless land that our Highlanders were thrust into?
1: Australia has an incredibly rich and
0: much more exciting
1: history before the British arrive. However, The First British Colony Settlement was established in 1788 and, as you're saying, it was initially set up as a penal colony, a place for convicts to do hard labour. Ah, the old out-of-sight, out-of-mind trick. Very out-of-sight and very out-of-mind. Now, because of the differences between Scots law and English law, Scotland did send far fewer convicts to Australia than England did, but it was still a part of Scots' legal system for many decades. You might remember, Jenny, one of our earliest episodes on the Radical War, when a bunch of men and even a boy who supported the Radical War in Scotland were transported to Australia. Mm. By the time Britain stopped sending prisoners over to Australia... In 1868 it's estimated that around a hundred and sixty thousand convicts had been shipped over in total the majority of them were petty criminals thieves and repeat offenders and around 25,000 of these people were women so that's only about 15 percent there's a massive gender imbalance in the early colony but free settlers, immigrants, and people born in the colony bring up the gender quota to mean that by the mid-1800s it's a more
0: balanced place once again. Okay, so it's a bit of a melting pot, but by the time of the Hercules it's a well-established colony and in colonial terms, thriving.
1: Yes, and then gold was discovered in 1851, so a huge gold rush followed. Previously... Australia had been seen as a less desirable place compared to Canada and America to emigrate to. But gold made it considerably more attractive, glittering and shiny. People began flowing from all over the world, the majority coming from Ireland, Scotland, England, Wales, America, Germany and China. One of the notes in the ship's registers, again in this little remarks column that I adore, was about the MacLeod family, a group of orphan siblings all in their 20s. And it said, Very eligible young people, they promise not to go to the gold fields. Ah, there be gold in these stolen lands. Yes, lots of it. It's really important again to note that the colonial activities were massively damaging for both Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Diseases brought by colonisers were lethal to huge numbers of Indigenous communities. As the colonies expanded, the actions of the colonisers initiated many violent conflicts and massacres of Indigenous Australians. This history of Scots as part of empire in Australia is massively important and one that we can't cover properly in this episode. So for now, let's return to this small piece of imperial expansion,
0: the ship, the Hercules. The Hercules docks in Adelaide and our sea-worn Highlanders disembark, no doubt with feelings of sadness, fear, excitement, hope. relief and very wobbly legs (laughs) yes very wobbly legs those who hadn't had their trip paid for by their landlords and had taken a loan from the Emigration society were keen to wobble straight into a job to pay back the debt that they owed most families found work however they had to disperse far and wide across the colony common jobs available were shepherding stockmen hut keepers laborers grooms, domestic servants, dairymaids, and wet nurses. While employment was a good thing, it was below the expectations that the people had upon embarking the ship, where they had been promised well-paid, skilled labour, as well as societal cohesion.
1: It wasn't as easy for these people to integrate into Australian society as they had imagined. The majority of those on board the Hercules were native Gaelic speakers, forced to leave Scotland because they were destitute. Anyone who lacked English would be at a severe disadvantage in making a life for themselves, so they'd have a fast learning curve. If they failed to find work upon arrival in Australia, they'd quickly fall into poverty, just as they had been when they left Scotland, only in a hotter climate.
0: And with way more deadly insects. And snakes. And snakes.
1: Because they'd been living impoverished lives for years, and had just endured a really grueling journey, it was common for immigrants to fall gravely ill upon arrival with many of the people from the Hercules being recorded as dying within their first few months
0: in Australia. This is so sad. It was such a dangerous journey, and the danger didn't end when the people arrived. They gave up so much. They endured so much. And the idea of there being no reward for this, that the end point of all the sacrifice and suffering is death. It's... It's just heartbreaking. In the end some did go to the goldfields in search of fortune but it was much easier for single men to go. Many of the Scottish family units were unwilling to separate. It was hard to find employment and stable life for all the family out on the goldfields and they were reluctant to split up. I
1: completely understand this. People were leaving Scotland because they wanted a better life for their families. So the last thing they're going to want to do is break up that family life. They're thousands of miles away from the only life that they've ever known. And they just want to hold on to what they love the most and cherish and feel safe with more than any promise of fortune. Plus, all these gold rushes are notorious for very few people striking lucky and
0: the majority of people striking poverty. But the Scottish family sticking together was actually favourable to the South Australian colony as thousands of working people had up and left for the goldfields in Victoria. Family units were far more likely to settle in the colony and thus contribute to its growth. Very much like those siblings you were talking about, Annie, promising not to go to the gold fields. They were essentially promising to stay where they landed and help contribute to that area's growth. And many of the families did just this. The people who survived the harrowing journey started their lives again. They settled into work, paid off their debts, bought sheep, cattle and land, they got married, they had children, they wrote home and they just kept on surviving
1: well speaking of writing home i've got quite a positive note to end on oh
0: thank the kangaroos annie honestly
1: (laughs) so this is a letter from margaret Macleod, who had traveled from the western isles of scotland to melbourne she had traveled the year prior to the hercules she describes her family arriving in australia and in all honesty she's just such a little beam of light that i find it quite inspiring so do you want to be Margaret Farvers from the Western Isles now in Australia? Alright, get ready to want to
0: emigrate to Australia. My dear brother and sister, it is with the greatest pleasure that I write to you these few lines to let you know that we are in good health. We are hoping and wishing that this letter may find you in the same condition. My dear brother, I'm sure that you would be longing to hear from us on how we are coming on. Firstly, I must tell you that Archie, James and Sandy McPherson went to the gold diggings about two months ago. What was keeping us so long from writing was that we were hoping to hear from them. We had a letter from them last Saturday and they were mentioning in it that they did very little at the gold diggings. But there is no saying that they may not get a little yet. But the gold diggings are not all so well as the reports in our country would have you believe. Roderick is working in a smithy in the town and getting paid three pounds six shillings a week. And Donald is in a lemonade shop and getting paid three pounds a week. Angus is working in a public house and getting one pound five shillings a week, along with rations. There's plenty of work here for every person that will work and good wages for tradesmen and labourers on top. I wish that you and Margaret would take the courage to come out here. Margaret would do very well in washing. She would get eight shillings for every dozen of linen she would wash and dress. Emily and I are getting a good deal of washing, and it's very useful to us because the men are not successful at the gold diggings. There is a Gaelic sermon preached every Sabbath, so the place is not for want of grace. This is a beautiful country, with always fine weather, but it is very hot sometimes, and I suppose it is never very cold. We had such a long voyage, but it was very favourable. I dare say that Thomas wrote to tell you of the death of our dear little boy, who suffered such a great deal. Poor John MacKinnon lost all his family. The only one that was living after arriving on shore died last week my dear brother give our kind love to all who inquire for us especially mr mccall and all acquaintances mother sends her love to mrs cameron's family and all friends your ever affectionate sister margaret
1: though margaret endured hardships I find it really touching that the first things she spoke about were the happy things in her life um, and also encouraging other people to join her in Australia. And she's listing the jobs that they've got and the amount of money that they're making so that people have a realistic idea of what they can earn when they come to Australia. And the original letter is a wee bit longer. She also listed all of the expenses that they had on their rent and how much a dozen eggs cost and so on. <laughs> but yeah, I I thought it was quite charming. <laughs> Overall, despite its difficult start, the Highlands and Islands Emigration Society was satisfied with the outcomes of the Hercules. The Port Adelaide immigration agent reported that the folks on board were...
0: Peaceable, orderly and moral, conditioned to hardships, hard-working, and accustomed to turn their hand to every description of rough outdoor work.
1: The colonial powers were happy with the Scots and so they paid the emigration society enough for a further thousand Highlanders to be transported. Over the next six years, and including the journeys that had already happened... Altogether, a total of 5,000 Highlanders and Islanders boarded steamships from their home ports and made the Emigration Society funded journey to Australia. Not quite the 40,000 that had originally been imagined,
0: but still a large number of people. And in 1858, the Highlands and Islands Emigration Society ceased its transportations. The economic conditions in Scotland were far more promising by this time, and so the number of people resorting to emigration was much, much smaller. The circumstances of Australia's colonies had also changed. They had become oversaturated with immigrants from all over the world and were unable to provide work for everyone, meaning that thousands were living in destitution and being supported by the struggling colony. Word of this reached back home, and put the few people looking to emigrate to Australia off it as a destination.
1: My point of view is that we should always look at the Highlands and Islands Emigration Society through a highly critical lens, because it's a charity that was founded on prejudice against the people that they are meant to be helping. But anyway, for every Scot who emigrated to Australia, they each have their own story. Some are tragic and tell of broken communities and families. Some tell of death and destitution and others are fairy tale stories of wild successes and riches and power. But the majority of folk integrated into the agricultural community and continued with their lives. No doubt, never forgetting the land that they came from.
0: My favourite story of a survivor of the Hercules was that of a fellow called Alexander MacLeod. He was famous for having walked from Clare to Adelaide and back a distance of 150 miles in three days. Three days, Annie. What a feat. What a guy. If there's one thing I want to be remembered for, it's my walking prowess. Alexander MacLeod died in Spalding aged 95 with the biggest calves you've ever seen on an OAP. The story of the Hercules is a page in the book of the Highland Clearances, which we'll definitely be covering in far more detail in the future, along with more immigration stories. The Highland Clearances are distilled into these stories of people either being forced off the land they have lived upon for generations or so desperately poverty-stricken that they had no other choice than to leave in the hopes of a better life elsewhere.
1: The journey of the Hercules was harrowing. On a small scale, we see folks trying to make the best out of a very bad hand that they've been dealt. From a broader perspective, we're seeing both Scottish businesses and people benefiting from an active role in the building of the British Empire. I often think about Highlanders who would have been cleared from their ancestral lands and then themselves went on to take part in the stealing of land from indigenous peoples through significantly more violent methods. I wonder if they could see the parallels in what they were doing and what had been done to them. I know it's a very challenging history to think about, but I think it's a really vital one. I've read a few primary sources from Highlanders who were in British colonies, and what really shocked me, which shouldn't have shocked me, was how much the Empire became a state of mind for them. You get Highland Scots speaking of the good education system being offered in colonised lands around the globe, Highlighting how the English language is being taught in schools for Indigenous children. These Gales were taught pride in assimilating into empire and holding the English language and culture and legal system as supreme. They were taught shame in their Gaelic roots and then they bring this shame to other Indigenous cultures around the world. And it's often delivered in a more brutal way. I think it's really vital that when we tell these stories that we also speak about indigenous peoples who are still feeling the aftermath of the empire and the impact that it had on their cultures. And now, let's go back to this single ship. The journey of the Hercules underpins both the hardship of the Highlanders and the ruthlessness of the Victorian British Empire.
0: This has been such a surreal journey considering we began with the line and now look down there, see that line of white-winged yachts between the mouth of the Sound and Oban, and even the steamers. I like them too. They tell what we can do in this country.
1: What do you think we can do in this country?
0: I'm not sure, Annie. We can try and make a podcast that addresses all the issues, but most likely it'll just be a big steaming mess, which gets eaten by sharks.
1: I think what we can do now is just learn from the mistakes of the past, right? Mm-hmm. I find this wee poem written by, oh, this is a nice Gaelic name, Jenny, Ian Rueg in 1853. So it's the time of the Hercules. And our red-haired Ian is lamenting the Scots leaving for the Australian gold rush. Then
0: hail to the land of treasures untold, the cities of riches, the valleys of gold. We'll transplant the thistle and carry it over, the plaid and the bonnet, the dirk and the claymore.
1: Then woe to our nobles, their factors and all. When our shores are menaced by the eagles of Gaul, they will want, when it's too late, the sons of the north, they previously valued at not half their
0: worth." That one goes out to all our Scots across the sea. With the journey of the Hercules, we've just scratched the surface of the Clearances. This is definitely a topic we will come back to. It's an incredibly important part of Scottish and global history, And we know a lot of you listening out there are descendants of seafaring Scots. We love that you still have the connection to the land that was once home to your ancestors. I think it's a testament to how loved the land was that so many still feel such a strong connection today.
1: With these people, there's a little bit of Scotland all across the globe. And if there's anything that this makes me feel, it's that we should be kind to all immigrants and asylum seekers when they wish to make a home here. There's a lovely Gaelic phrase, Kied millefalce, meaning a hundred thousand welcomes. And I feel like everyone deserves that when they want to make a home in Scotland. And that's the end to our voyage of the Hercules. On a slightly different note, we have recently released a short audio drama podcast which focuses on the infamous story of Isabel Gaudi, a woman accused of witchcraft in the 1600s. It's a little bit different from Stories of Scotland, but we think you'll love it nonetheless. It's called Weight of Sand, and if you haven't already listened, you can head over to The Weight of Sand on any podcast player and join us as we journey back in time.
0: It's been really exciting and fun releasing a new podcast into the world. We have so many more that we want to write and bring to life for all of you to listen to and enjoy. If you would like to give us a helping hand in doing so, then you can support us on Patreon. If you head over to www.patreon.com stories of Scotland, you can not only help us as we continue to write and release this show, but you also get lots of weird and wonderful Scottish stories and fun. Thank you to our latest Patreon supporters, Ron, Alicia, Letta, Cheryl, Caius the Fox and Jen.
1: I really want to end on a happy note. So I thought, what connects Scotland and Australia?
0: We both have wallaby populations. Are you, are you about to make everyone wallabies on Wallaby Island on Loch Lomond with little wallaby cupcakes and teapots? Oh. And if you want to know what we're talking about, actually, we ha- I have done a Patreon wallabies uh, in Scotland, so sign up to Patreon. <laughs> don't be silly, Jenny.
1: Those wallabies don't have teapots. They are Australian, so they drink beer. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> 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 The sea is what connects Scotland and Australia. Okay, yeah. I came across another 1853 letter home from Australia by John MacKinnon, and it describes the sea really lovingly. This is from his trip from Scotland to Australia. There's so much that I would tell you if I were near to you that I can't write here. Many wonders I have seen during the journey, but it was the flying fish that were the greatest of the wonders I saw. They were so numerous about the ship for four or five weeks they would fly 200 or 300 yards before they would halt. The smallest of them are about the size of a big juicy herring. So inspired by this I like to think of you all, our wonderful patrons, as mer people. Half human, half fish, maybe even half flying fish, you didn't see that coming, did you? (laughs) Connecting all the cultures around the world who believe in any version of Atlantis. Under the sea, you convene in great halls of coral and in massive underwater caverns. You have giant underwater tennis tournaments. And the giant squid always wins because she's so fast with all her tentacles.
0: All right. <laughs> you can also support us on all the social medias by rating and reviewing us and sharing us with your family and friends and fellow giant squids. Until next time, Slanjava.
1: Slanjava. Well, fortunately for you, Jenny, I have a wee tidbit about... (laughs) Tidbit? I can't say tidbits.
0: I love making you say tidbit. It's like my favourite part of the podcast. So (laughs) weird.
1: The bodies could not be kept on board because there was no way to stop the decay and decomposition of the body, despite all the vinegar that they had. So, to deal with... (laughs)
0: Um, So here's Uncle Barry and Uncle James, and here's pickled Aunt Anne. Can I interest you in a piece of pickled pork? I prefer dried Anne, if I'm honest, to pickled Anne.
1: I'm so glad we got through that straight face. (laughs) I hope people listening will find that funny, but we can't laugh. We can't leave this in the edit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh Oh god, that's dark, you may confess it. Okay. God that's funny. (laughs) So